I want to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 2, first of all. So as we finished up our journey through the Gospel of John last week, one of the things that I had begun to do all through this is I had begun to note some really key aspects and some really key themes that run from the beginning of John all the way to the end. And so along the way, I was kind of making note of those things. And, and uh, when we got closer to finishing, I sensed that it would be good for us to look at some of those key um, aspects. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to do that. And so we'll begin to do that um, today. And so I entitled the next three weeks, The Parameters of Jesus. And so let me explain what that means. When Christ came here, um, yes, He's God, He's independent, He has all authority, but He Himself consistently said that I only do what I see the Father do. I say the things that the Father has told me to say. I go where the Father leads me. So there wasn't anything about His life that was self-initiated by Jesus, but everything that He did here, by the way of His communication, was in yielding and complete trust to the Father. So what began to stand out to me as we walked through um, this study over the last three years is that Jesus Himself had boundaries. That He was not allowed to go beyond those things. Now again, He's God, but during His time here, it was going to be different. And so there were certain aspects of, of Christ's life that He did not do because He didn't see the Father doing it. He didn't hear the Father doing it. The Father wasn't moving in that way. And so so Jesus lived His life in utter, complete submission to the Father in every kind of way. So I began to pose this question to myself as we walked along, and I want to pose it uh, to us this morning. If Jesus had parameters in His life, how much do you and I need them? If He couldn't just live independently and do whatever He wanted to do, every moment of his life needed to be yielded to the Father, how desperate are you and I to learn from the one, by the way, who did that perfectly, never sinned. And so this this dominated his life. And so we're going to begin these kind of summary aspects, really key themes that were found in the Gospel of John. So today I want to talk about the first aspect of the parameters of Jesus. And I want to talk about that we must entrust our soul to the Lord um, and the Lord's opinion about things and not other people's opinion about things, but the priority is what does God have to say about something? And then we will close today about what does it look like to devour and desire the Word of God and the will of God um, to be a key part of our lives. I think it's hard, honestly, to even begin to imagine the true fullness of the perfection of Jesus. It's just hard to imagine what that must be like while he was here on the earth. There was never a day in his life when he wanted anything else but to live in pursuit of his father. He resisted every temptation or a choice before him to do something on his own will or his own way. Every moment of each day of his life, the father's will got every consideration, the highest consideration in his life, in every moment, every situation, and everything. He never thought of himself as more important, nor did he live one single time thinking that he could find life away from the Father. I could just take a break this afternoon. Sometimes we feel like, I just, I need a break. There's never a moment in his obedience to the Father, we feel like, well, I just need a break. No, he just, he just yielded, even in those moments in his flesh, probably where he was tired. In other aspects, he never was going to step away from what the Father wanted for him. Jesus knew that the Father had life in himself and had entrusted Jesus to come and to give that life and to pour out his life for others. So imagine that, never ever stepping away or desiring to step away from the will of God. See, Jesus knew what you and I also ought to know is that true freedom is not found in living for self. It is not found from taking a break from the Father. Rather, he knew that life is found walking in obedience. You can't find life away from that. And so Jesus, because he is life, never wanted to seek life anywhere else. He is life himself. He was going to find life in his relationship 
with the Father, and so he never took a break from anything. His one singular passion it was defined by his pursuit of the Father, and it set the parameters of his life, what he would do, what he would not do, and how he would live. So you and I give a lot of attention to the adult life of Jesus, but there are unique scenes in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, about the early life of Jesus. And I want to just summarize for us for a moment the entire perspective that I think Jesus had from a toddler. God was a toddler at one point in time. God needed adults to help him. But once he began to grow, Luke writes some incredible things about Jesus at a young age that carried through all the way to the cross. So look with me, if you would, please, in Luke chapter 2, verse 39 and 40, and we're going to get to John, but I think these things are really important. So, so I want to take some time to look at this. So read with me, please, Luke 2, 39 and 40. Actually, I want to go, go, back, to, go back to 33, Luke 2, 33. Let's put all this together. So his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Listen to her life. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to whom all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything, this is Mary and Joseph, according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I want to talk just for a moment about the growth of Jesus from babyhood to boyhood that Luke 2 there shares with us. Jesus does not grow up in a fancy palace. He grows up in a small village. He was a country boy. I think he'd have driven a truck. It probably would have been a little bit older and rough, but this was Jesus' life. This verse tells us he would have grown up in a home where the Old Testament law was a priority for the family. He would have grown up going to the local synagogue, listening to rabbis speak. This would have been a practice of his family. He would have listened to the other leaders in the community talk about things. So he grows up in a small town called Nazareth in obscurity and anonymity. God is growing up in Nazareth and nobody really knows it, but, but Mary and Joseph know the uniqueness that is there. So he would have grown up from babyhood to boyhood in those early years learning about the importance of family, of community, of having friends, of, of a God-centered life and relationship, relationships. And so the verse tells us that as a boy, he was growing physically and spiritually. It says he was filled with wisdom. Already, it says that the favor of God was upon him. You do not have the favor of God upon your life unless you are walking in obedience. So already at a young age, Jesus has made a decision that he's going to walk with his father. He's, he's aware and he's passionate about his father. So as a, as a toddler, as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as an eight-year-old, he's not sinning. Can you imagine having Jesus as your brother, your older brother? So here he is, just every aspect of his life, submission to his parents, obedience, not talking back, doing whatever it is that he's been asked to do. He walks and he lives in obedience. And so he's growing physically, he's growing spiritually, and he's growing in favor with people and with God. And God's favor is upon him. What's unique about this is this is all taking place in a small village in Galilee. 
And nobody really knows what is happening and taking place. Isaiah writes about this. Listen to these words. This is a prophetic picture of what it would be like with Jesus. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, if you will go back today, this afternoon, and look at your elementary school pictures, nobody looks good at all. So Jesus would have been kind of the same way. When you looked at Jesus in Nazareth, nobody went, there's God. He's growing up in our village. How awesome is this? He just kind of sprouted up out of the ground. And when you looked at him, you didn't see that, except this. Even at a young age, and again, I want you to just just fathom this for a moment. Again, I know it's God in a body, so it's different than you and I. He didn't have a sinful heart. But at a young age, adults in the community of Nazareth looked at Jesus and thought, there's something different about him. And so even as a young boy, he is growing in the favor of God and with others. He just wasn't like the other kids, though he grew up with other kids. He was a kid who had the favor of God on his life. Now, I want to state this, and I know most of the kids are probably gone out of the room this morning. Do not think for a moment, parents, grandparents, aunt and uncles, that your young children cannot deeply love God and desire His Word and, and to live like Jesus. I would encourage you today to point these things out that we're talking about today. That even at a young age, Christ's heart was for His Father. So now let's look with me in verse 41. Let's look at Him now growing. So that's babyhood to boyhood, kind of what was happening take place. Let's see um, Him growing into a young adult or a youth. Verse 41 of Luke 2. Now His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when He was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. So the idea there in 43, he's not in the Jewish eyes of things reached manhood yet. He's still a boy. He's 12, we're going to find out here in a second. So he stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances... And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. You talk about panic moment for parents. The next verse says this. After three days of not knowing where your 12-year-old is, here's where it is. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Well, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now I want to just take 51 for a second. I need every kid and student to sit up straight and to look me in the eyes right now. Everybody. Thank you. You did that. You obeyed well. I want to to point out something that's really important. You are not going to have... The parents of the year, probably. You're not going to have perfect parents. They're not going to be. They're going to get too angry at times. Um, They're going to forget you at church, which I've done twice with my children and left them here. The Crosbys, I think, lead the the church and the history of the church of leaving their kids here. Um, So kids and students, you need to know this. Your parents aren't perfect. Jesus being the perfect Son of God, do you think He had perfect human parents? No, He did not. Did you notice, students, 
how Jesus lived His life to Mary and Joseph. He was submissive to them. Now I want you to think about how how significant this is. This is a 12-year-old who spoke the world into existence because he never had a beginning. He's the creator of the universe. Now he's come and he's in a body. He's growing up in Nazareth. He's perfect. He's still sinless. He's the eternal God at 12. And he lives his life being submissive to his parents. Mary and Joseph did not always do everything right. And yet, what did Jesus do? He obeyed them anyway. Why? Because there is a promise that is connected with you obeying your parents. There's a blessing that is connected there. And so, again, I just want to remind you, you're not going to have perfect parents. They don't exist. Amen? If you're a parent. There is not perfect parents. And some of you may have more difficult family situations than others. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if your parents are not asking you to go do awful things, you are asked by God, according to the Scripture, to live in His blessing by submitting to the spiritual authority over your life and your parents to obey them and to listen to them. Sometimes you have to discern what's right. Parents are wrong, right? They are. They're wrong at times. So maybe you as a student need to discern something that your parents are saying. That's okay to do. And yet at the end of the day, according to Jesus here, who did not have perfect parents, he submitted to them. So that's an extra sermon. Parents, um, you can thank me later for that. But let's talk about this for a moment. It was customary that you had to go to at least one of the three big festivals in Israel every year. I get the sense probably that Mary and Joseph took Jesus probably to all three of them, not just one of them, but on this one they went. And they trusted him enough at age 12 that likely what happened back in those days that that there would be a group of entourage of people from Nazareth that would travel together down to Jerusalem. They would kind of stay together. They would be together. And then when it was the festivals were over, they would go back and they would travel together. And so you've got, you, you don't necessarily have your kids right with you. Again, you're raising Jesus who's been perfect. He's shown himself to be trustworthy up until 12. And so they're walking and they're leaving and he has stayed behind and nobody knows that he has stayed behind. So Mary and Joseph panic for three days. Why? Because they've lost God. And they don't know where he is. They should have known where he is, probably by the way that he lived his life. I think his statement when he says to Mary, did you not know where I would be? I think it's not smart, actually, because there's no way it could be, because that would be not being submissive and not honoring his parents. I, I I think that statement just simply says this, Have you not been watching me my whole life? Where else do you think I would be but right here in the place that embodies and symbolizes every aspect of who I am? He's the fulfillment of every part of the temple, every aspect of it. He is the light. He is the bread. He is all of that. He is the worship. He is everything. And so when they get there and they find him, it's an amazing scene a 12-year-old boy sitting among the leading religious, theological, doctrinal minds of the day, asking them questions. Do you think he asked them? We get this question all the time. Did dinosaurs exist? I don't think he probably asked that question. I think he was asking deeply substantive questions. That's why everybody around is going, what's up with this guy? He has insight that you don't have. Now again, he is the incarnate word. He's a little bit different than us. But if you're 12 in the room today, you're 15 in the room today, ask God big questions. Ask God deep questions about what what it means that he is this way, what it means that he says the things, what he calls us to do. Asking big questions. That's how Jesus lived. Asking leaders gaining insights. And so this kind of is his bar mitzvah, I guess, in a sense. 
It's a little bit different. Most of those happened in the villages when they moved into adulthood, the boy um, and, and into manhood. And for Jesus, it seems like it takes place here. He takes great responsibility for his faith at age 12. That's why on Wednesday nights in here, and when we get into small groups, we challenge the students. We want them to think big. We want them to, to imagine big things about, about the truth of who God is and to come to deep understanding about that. So at age 12, his priority is his father. And so he says to his parents, where else would I be except doing the priority of seeking my father? Let's talk now for a moment about growing into a man and 12 years and older. Look at verse 52. And Jesus, this is from age 12 on, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This word increased, I'm not sure what your translation says, but the ESV has this word increased. It describes the pioneers back in the Roman army days and Greek army days when the army is coming into a place and they're going to do battle, there were a group of people that went ahead and they would cut down trees. And they would open up the space so when the, the army came through, they weren't dodging things and moving things. So they would, the, the, this group of people would come through, they were kind of pioneers, and they would cut the trees down, they would move them away. So when the army came through, they would be able to march through. And this is, this is what this word uh, means here. That when Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, it describes strenuous work. I've, I've done this a few times and with a chainsaw cut down a tree. A couple thousand years ago, they didn't have that. It was hard, hard work chopping down big trees in a forest and places. And so the idea of this Greek word means strenuous work where someone beats and chops their way forward. So if you think it was easy for Jesus growing up, living on earth, it wasn't. As he was growing in his maturity, he is doing that. He is beating, he is chopping, he is clearing the way in his life that he would walk in obedience with the Father. That's what it means. So as he is increasing, strenuous, strenuous work as a 12-year-old, as a 15-year-old, as a 22-year-old, of walking in pursuit and obedience with his Father. He kept making progress in his life. So at each stage of his life, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And at each stage, he grew in a similar manner as the others with great favor from his Father. And though he, all, he knows all things, he's God, he still learns certain things and, and how to live life here and how to relate to people here, like submitting to his parents and respecting elders. So the scripture... I believe, is the absolute key as to why at every stage of his life he continued to grow to deep maturity. And he continued to walk in faithfulness with his Father. You don't get wisdom. Here's how you get wisdom. I've met some younger generation people who have wisdom. I've met some older generation people who have no wisdom. And here's how you get spiritual wisdom. You know the truth, and you walk the truth, and as you put the truth into practice in your life, you gain what's called wisdom. Wisdom comes from practice. And so when we do Psalm 119, we've been doing it for years and years now, right? Amen? We've been doing it. There's a verse in there, I have more wisdom than the aged. And there's another verse that says, I know more than my teachers, I believe it says. And the reason they know more than the teachers, because I have kept your word. I have valued your word. So you can be 13 in the room this morning and have a greater wisdom than a 55-year-old in this room this morning. Because if the 55-year-old just has knowledge and has never practiced and walked in the truth, then they've not gained wisdom to see that the Word of God is practical. It empowers us. It allows us to say no to temptation. But I have met 15-year-olds who have a wisdom of a 15-year-old 
because they took their faith serious and they walked in the truth of God's word. And because they put it into practice, they have insight about things. And sometimes I sit down at a table with them on a mission trip and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, you don't want to go overboard with a 15 year old. Let's just be honest. But I'll get on my air mattress in my sleeping bag at night on a mission trip and I'll think about what that student said at the table and go, wow, that's someone who has read God's word, taken God's word serious, put it into practice, and they have an insight and have a wisdom at their young age that is rare. This was the way of Jesus. And I believe it's because of the scripture, his desire to live in obedience to everything that the Father said and everything that had been laid out. It became the blueprint of his life, the scripture. You never hear a construction contractor say, I don't like to blueprints, it's too binding, too restrictive. I just want to kind of build something the way I want to build it. Do you ever hear them do that? No, what do they do? They say, no, I'm going to rely on the engineers and the architect's work and the plans, and then I'm going to put it into practice, and I'm going to build according to the specifications. And yet, this is the ouch. And yet, we have far too many Christians who speak like that in regard to God's blueprint for our lives. I don't need to read the Bible for myself. Once a week at church is enough. And by having that attitude and that perspective, we say to God that His blueprint for our lives is not enough and we have a better blueprint and we have a better plan. And do we? We do not. So we learn from Jesus that He followed God's path for Him. Now just a few more things, and I know, you're, I know some of you are already worried. Oh my gosh, we haven't even gotten to John yet. Be patient, okay? And it's not going to take long when we get there. Outside of three years of ministry, Jesus lived like you and I. As a matter of fact, we just get three insights from babyhood to boyhood, boyhood to young adulthood, and then we get this picture of when he returns from Jerusalem after they've left him there from 12 until he until the Gospels begin, for the most part, where he starts his ministry. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. For 18 years of his life, he lived like you and I did. He had some of his Saturdays were the same as the Saturday before and the Saturday before, just normal life. He had a work week. He had family relationships. At the end of the week, he would go to the local synagogue with his family to hear the reading of scriptures. He would grow up going to weddings of family members or family friends. He did what you and I did. My Saturday yesterday was not very eventful. It was a great Saturday, pretty relaxing Saturday. And Jesus had a lot of Saturdays like that in his life. And so I began to wonder... From age 12 to age 30, when he steps onto the scene, he begins to preach and he begins to heal and he begins to do ministry. What did those 18 years look like? You know what they looked like? They looked like our lives. He, was, he wasn't doing miracles. What was he doing? He was working along, alongside his father Joseph, being a carpenter. He was doing regular life. He would come home at mealtime and have a meal with his family. And yet, I believe, based on what Jesus says that I've seen, and we've all seen together in the Gospel of John, there was something that drove his life every day from a toddler to an adult until he died on the cross. And in those 18 years from 12 to 30, when he begins his ministry, how did he live his life? I, I want to propose something. So I want you to go back to Psalm 138 for a second. I want to show you something there of what I think was Christ's priority. 
that probably most of his life was a bit mundane and normal and consistent. So how did he live in those 18 years? What were his priorities? What guided him? What did he do? What did he like to do? Psalm 138, verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name and for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Now look up here. How did he live his life in those 18 years of living life like you and I, waking up, going to work, coming home, doing life, consistent things, relationships, responsibilities, things that he needed to do, eat, sleep, rest, build relationships, have friendships. What did he do? What did he value? Since he valued the Word of God, and since he is the Word of God, and since since. Since Psalms 138, Psalm 138 verse 2 is there, we get insight to the priority of God. Did you see what God exalts above all things? Read it again. I want you to see it. Read verse 2 for yourself. Look at it. What does God lift up above everything? That's a response question. His name and what? His word. So what are we to do then? How are you and I to live our lives knowing that what God has exalted, what God has made much of, is the glory and the honor of His name? And that God has exalted that His people should honor His Word because because you can't separate... When you're talking about God, you cannot separate His name, His Word from who He is... And so God's ultimate priority, not just in this verse, is that God is exalted above all things. That's what Psalm 138.2 says. His name and His Word. And I want to propose this morning that one of the unique things about Jesus' life is that when He was here in a body, that He lived those 18 years, He lived His ministry doing that focused on the name of His Father and the glory of His Father and walking in obedience to the Word and the law that He was instructed as a Jewish boy and a Jewish man to follow. Is that the only place this is communicated? That God has made much of His name and much of His Word? No, the Scripture is permeated with that. If you're taking notes, you can write Psalm 19, 7-11 down one of the greatest declarations about what needs to be a priority in our life. Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 42, 21. The Lord was pleased for His righteousness sake to magnify His law and to make it glorious. And so Jesus lived, I believe, His life in passionate pursuit of His Father by being obedient to the Word of God. And he grew in stature, in favor with God and men, because the Word of God is the priority. And I think we have to honestly just ask the question this morning to examine each of ourselves as I have examined myself walking through this. Is this the case for us? Do we love God's name in such a way that we're going to live in a way to walk in obedience that He would be honored by our trust in His eternal Word. That His name matters. That there's something in us that cringes when it's used not rightly. That we want to live in such a way that that God is honored and this is the way and the manner in which Jesus lives. And I remind us this morning, He is our model. There's not another model but Him. And because He lived this way, then we must fix our eyes upon Him. And this must be our focus. So as Jesus begins His ministry, there are certain things in light of He wanted to honor the name of the Father and walk in obedience um, to the Word of God. And and because the Father exalts the Word of God to be such a high priority, there were certain things that He would not do and He wasn't going to do it. So I want us to look at the first one. Go to John chapter 2 now. And I want to read a couple verses here and then we're going to go to John 4 and read a couple verses 
as we finish things up. John 2. So Jesus does his first public miracle in John chapter 2. It's at a wedding in Cana. And then John 2, 23 through 25, if you would follow there with me. He begins to do more miracles as his ministry begins. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I find it incredibly amazing that the purpose in which he came was to redeem the lost, and yet for 30 years, what did he do? He just lived patiently, waiting for the Father's instruction to begin ministry. We can't wait 30 seconds at Sonic. Where are they? 30 years he waits, came for the specific purpose. So that means this, But for much of his adult life, he would wake up in the morning, he would go to the carpenter shop, and he would work. He would go home. He would wake up the next morning, and he would do that. Faithfully obey, waiting, being patient. And when it came time for him to step out onto the scene, he began to preach, he began to teach, and he began to do miracles. Now, many in the world are trying to seek validation in all kinds of different ways. But Jesus wasn't that way. He wasn't trying to get validation from other people. He wanted one, 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 one singular one to give him validation. That was his father. So, you know this. We all know this. If you haven't been alive at all on this planet, you know this, that people, everybody has an opinion about something. And sometimes that opinion is about our life, about the choices we make, what we do, how we do this, what we say, what our personality is like. Everybody has that. And if we're not careful, here's what happens. We begin to go, oh, I'm going to listen to this negative criticism that's been coming from this, this group of people or this person, and we begin to conform our life to their thoughts instead of no. I'm going to allow God's word to shape my life and I, I, I can't buy in to what they say. There's every one of us that have people in our lives who, who speak into it in some kind of negative way. Some of us grew up in, in, in homes where we had a critical parent and we, we still hear that voice from a coworker now and, 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 and we have to deal with that stuff even as we've gotten older And the only way, and please hear this, ultimately the only way that we're ever going to break away from that stranglehold is to shift our lives back to what God has to say about His people. It's the only way. I'm I'm not anti-counseling as long as it's biblical. Because ultimately the only thing that frees us, do you remember what the only thing that frees us, you will know the what and the truth will what set you free. So Jesus starts doing miracles and it says, and many believed in his name, but then it says, but he would not entrust himself to them. This word entrust there is similar to the word many believed in his name. It's another word, Greek word for believe. And so what it means is many began to believe in Jesus's name began to believe in Jesus because of the works that he was doing, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Why? Because he knew the human heart. That the human heart, we're going to put these, hey, we put these up on the film. Here's the danger of entrusting our lives too much to people. The hearts of people is deceitful. Secondly, there's a danger of listening to people who are very prideful. Sometimes even listening to ourselves when we can be very prideful and we listen to our own counsel sometimes that's not steeped in the truth of God's Word. So we've got to be careful seeking validation from people who have deceitful hearts. We've got to be careful because of the pride of our own life and the pride of others. The third thing is we grow up in a world and it's a danger of a corrupt culture. Is our culture not corrupt? 
And so we've got, to, we've got to learn to discern with that. We've got to learn not to buy into what's being promoted and talked about so much. And I, I want to give this fourth one. This is a grave danger, is that we begin to see that the cross is not enough to give definition and understanding as to who we are. See, the cross screams that God loves us and that God invites people to relationship. So when the text here in John chapter 12, John chapter 2 speaks about this, Jesus' first parameter is this, is that he was careful to not let the crowd sweep him up to become something that he, wasn't, he didn't come to be. What did the Jews want him to be? What did the apostles want him to be? They wanted him to be a king, right? Over and over, they wanted him to be a king. Are you, are you going to set up your kingdom now and get rid of Rome and, and, and things are going to, you're going to restore the kingdom now? No, okay, okay, no, that's not. He, he didn't come to, to do that. He came to establish another kingdom, a spiritual kingdom called the church. So Jesus lived his life in such a way that he was able to discern but he couldn't submit his life to the opinions and the excitement and the whims of other people, that he had to give greater priority to his Father. Now, I want to make sure that you're not mishearing me. This doesn't mean that we don't have wise people in our life that we seek counsel from. We do. But even with that, we use discernment connected to the Scripture. We must do that. Because sometimes there's even pride with people who know a lot that just want to share information a lot. And so we, we have to always exercise discernment. So Jesus, while the people in a sense were believing in him, he was not believing or trusting in them because he knew the instability of a life. Now I want to go, if you would, go with me now to John Chapter 4. Here's the next parameter, unique insight from Jesus himself. So they have gone through Samaria. He has sent the disciples into town to get food. Um, They have left Jesus at a well. He's tired, thirsty, hungry. They've gone into a place to get food to come out. And so John 4, 31 Meanwhile, the disciples, they, came, they have come back. The disciples are urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. So the disciples said to one another, well, has somebody brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Verse 34 is this next pivotal priority of Jesus, a parameter in which he lived in. He lived by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. This is how he lived his life. So Jesus' food is to know the word of God and the will of God and to live that out. And so the disciples come back and they're like, Rabbi, you've got to eat. And as they left, they probably passed this woman as they're going into town She's coming up to the well. There's no indication there that they engage her in any kind of conversation. After all, she's a Samaritan. We're Jews. We're not even comfortable kind of being here. But, but Jesus has forced them to walk through Samaria, heading up to the north in Galilee. And so when they return, they find him talking with a woman. They've got the food to eat, but he doesn't seem to be interested in eating anymore. They want to eat probably. Rabbi, we're not going to eat without you. Rabbi, you need to eat. They have been with him for a while now, and they know that he likes to eat. He's got an appetite, just like them. And yet now he's talking with her. Maybe they can hear some of the words, and they're probably puzzled, going, what in the world is going on here? Why is he talking to a woman who's come at the well at noon? And I believe the reason is that they still don't understand what drove Jesus, what was his passion. They don't understand fully his mission yet. They're trying to understand it. They're trying to get to that place. While they were gone, Jesus was eating. Do you see that? 
He was eating. Not bread. He was eating what? The will of his father. Have you ever been there? Have you ever gone on a mission trip? Have you ever been somewhere? We used to have these things called revivals. You remember revivals? Y'all think we put pressure on y'all to come to church? Twice a year, most of us grew up in churches where you had to come to church seven nights to a revival, and you were expected to be there, and people were wondering, where are you? It doesn't matter that there's Friday night football. Why weren't you at the revival service? So here is the Lord engaging her, transforming her, and if you have ever experienced a move of God in your life or you've been somewhere where, where God moves and he, he kind of moves in a place and he awakens people, you're not worried about what time do we, what time's lunch. Because, because something has happened that is greater than physical hunger, which needs to be satisfied. But when we've experienced the transforming work of the presence of God, then we are filled in a stomach and in a place in our life that you don't know about. Unless you have experienced God in that way. And so Jesus, while they've gone to get physical food, which is important... Jesus has been eating. He has transformed this woman's life. She's brought a water jar and she leaves it. What did she come for? Water for the rest of the day. She leaves it. Why? Because she has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. She has eaten. She has drank of the living water Jesus had been talking about. So she didn't She wasn't focused. Note this. She wasn't focused anymore on water from a well. She had drank living water. And she goes back into a town where she was an outcast because women of the day didn't come at noon to get water. You got water in the morning for the rest of the day. She's had five husbands and is now living with someone outside of marriage with someone who's not her husband. She's tasted the living water, and the beauty of John 4 is this. She goes back into town where she's an outcast, and she goes to all those people who view her as an outcast, and she says, you've got to come out to Jacob's well. I met a man who knows everything about me. Think about that for a second. He knows all my secrets. He knows all my passions that are not God-honoring, and that freed her because she had tasted what forgiveness is like. And she brings a crowd of people out to hear Jesus. I will note that the 12 have been in that village getting food and nobody followed them out. You know what happens when a life is transformed? It has great impact on the people around that life. And so they come out and Jesus And the apostles stay a couple more days. But I want to say this as we wind this down. If his food, his greater priority food, was not chicken green curry from spoon and fork, which is my favorite meal. If his greatest hunger was that the will of God would be accomplished in his life. How much more do you and I need to eat and partake of the food that Jesus is talking about here? And that is the word of God walking in the will of God. See, we get so caught up in picnics, getting earthly things and earthly food and stuff like that. And Jesus says here, no, I was caught up in my Father's mission, in my Father's will, in my Father's heart, and that is walking and aligning my life with Him. So how do we do that? How do we do that? So I want you to go now to Luke chapter 10, and I want to show you something there of what this looks like. Because I think what we see in Luke 10 was Jesus' practice with his father. 
And we see it in the life of someone else before Jesus. Very familiar text. Luke 10, verse 38. Before we get there, I just want to say a couple of things that I think are important. All of our lives can be much the same, busy, complicated, too jumbled with things. And sometimes I look at my life from time to time and I ask the question, is this really what God has designed for me to be this busy and this jumbled and things this complicated? And when I take a careful exam and God's really had nothing to do with a lot of that, I've caused it all. Uh, my lack of scheduling and, and things of that nature. Um, he doesn't want our lives frantic all the time. Sometimes life is frantic, but that's not the case. But I know this, that I am in desperate need of simplicity in my life. Where there's a refining of my priorities to fall in line with His. So let me share three verses before, then before we read Luke 10. There is a consistent theme that runs in the Old Testament and the New Testament as to what, what you and I need in regard to what we've looked at today. Not entrusting our lives to the opinions of others, but making sure that God's opinion and what God has to say matters most, but also living in obedience to God's Word in John chapter 4, where our, our food is to do the will of God, to know the Word of God and to do the will of God, which eventually results in wisdom, which marked Jesus' life. A simplicity, a single-mindedness. So in Psalm 27, 4, this is what David writes. One thing I have asked of the Lord. One thing. I've got one thing that I'm asking God about. That I will seek after that one thing. And then David writes what it is. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What happens in the house of the Lord? God's presence. God's words proclaimed. So this was David's. And then he says, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of him in his temple, to pray to him. That's an Old Testament simplistic perspective. One thing I want, one thing I want. You come to the New Testament and Paul, very singular minded, writes this in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained all this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. This is the one thing that I do. I want to know Him. So one thing, this is what I do. And he he, he says these words. Forgetting what lies behind, forgetting the past, I can't do anything about that. And straining to what lies ahead. What lies ahead? Well, he defines it in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in my life that is found in Christ. I must know Christ. There's another place where he defines the simplicity that must be a part of the Christian life. He lived among the Corinthian believers for almost two years. He wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. He said, brothers, when I, was, when I was around you, here's the thing about my life. You know this to be the case. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I had no other priority than to know Christ and Him crucified. And then we're going to learn about something from the mouth of Jesus. So from the mouth of David, from the mouth of Paul, and from the mouth of Jesus about what is needed. So look with me. Luke 10, let's read this. I'm going to make a couple of comments and then we'll pray. Now, as they went on their way, Luke 10, 38, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And the Lord answered her, and you don't want Jesus saying your name twice, by the way. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, 
which will not be taken away from her. I want to share a few things as we finish that I think are important, grounded in this text. Can you imagine what it was like to have Jesus show up at your house? Wow. What would you do? Well, we have two sisters, and they both respond differently when Jesus shows up. One thinks, okay, i got to get busy serving everybody. Boy, do you not see that in church settings? Got to be busy, got to be busy, got to do this, got to do this. And we give badges now for being busy. Sounds like it, the way sometimes we talk. Oh, I've just been so busy, I've been so busy. Can we be honest about our busyness? Has God, has, has God instructed that busyness? Has God scheduled that busyness in our life? No, He has not. We have. There is something to do about that busyness. Other priorities. Other decisions. And so Jesus shows up and one sister says, this is the decision I'm going to make. The other sister says, well, this is the decision I'm going to make. Now Martha's got us. She's serving Martha is. But did you notice there she doesn't have a servant's heart? You ever met those people? God's for hospitality, is he not? It's a spiritual gift, hospitality. Maybe she has the gift of hospitality. But you know that sometimes the gift of hospitality needs to be set aside for the greater work. What was the greater work happening in the house that day? Jesus' presence. Him teaching. Food can wait. Jesus is in the house. Sit at his feet. Eat up what he's saying. So this is the the setting. See, the priority is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and it must take precedent over everything. Jesus didn't travel all over Israel to conferences, having music time, and have a little band with him where they would do things. You know what he did everywhere he went? He stepped into synagogues, he stepped into houses, and he taught. He proclaimed the truth. Why? Because the truth sets people free. So he established what was of value. How do we know that was what he valued? Read the book of Acts. What did his followers do? When they went into cities and places, what did they do? They taught. They proclaimed in a simplistic way. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. He bore our sin. He died. He rose again. And He offers you eternal life. This Greek word here that describes Mary sat at the Lord's feet is an interesting word. I can't pronounce it. It's so complicated, but I'll tell you what it means. It means this. It means to seat yourself. Just intentionally seat yourself down. What's interesting in Luke chapter 10 is she's breaking the rules. Rabbis did not have women learners. That was a no-no. Yet on this day, she decides, no, I'm a learner. I want to be near Jesus. So she just sits down at his feet as close as she can get. Y'all stay away from these, except for Angela and Isaac, from the spitting zone here, because when I get excited, sometimes things come out of my mouth. She didn't care. She sat in the spit zone that day with Jesus. She comes as close as she knows that she can. And by the way, I want to say this. He didn't excuse her. He didn't say, go do women's work in the kitchen. What did he do? He just let her stay. Why? Because she was choosing the one thing that is most necessary in our lives. See, the ancient posture of a disciple or a learner was to sit at their feet of the teachers. It showed humility to the teacher. And in the kitchen that day, there was bread that perishes that was being baked. But in the living room, the bread that the Son of Man gives was pouring out of the mouth of Jesus. And one sister was making physical bread. One sister was eating the bread of the Word of God. And when you and I don't make this the priority of our life, you know what? We will eventually become frustrated Christians. And we want to blame other people. 
We'll even come in and interrupt Jesus giving a Bible study. And that's what Martha does. She can't take it anymore. I'm serving, I'm serving. And my sister is in there doing nothing. Maybe Mary at one point in time was in the kitchen helping and she's disappeared and she's doing this and she peeks out around the kitchen door and looks in there. Oh, there she is, just sitting down. There she is again, always at the feet, always sitting. My lazy sister. And she can't take it anymore and she comes into the room. And again, I want you to think about this. Jesus has... The scripture affirms this over and over. He's the creator. He has created Martha and the creation comes into the room and commands the creator how he ought to view the situation. You ever done that? We do that. Lord, have you not looked at my circumstances? When are you going to do something? And the point is this. I think you get it. Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, you've lost perspective. You are distracted. The word distracted there means pulled and dragged away. Our faith can get squeezed so much sometimes with the urgent that we rarely stop down for what's truly, ultimately essential. And Martha loses perspective on this day. And again, though biblical, her desire for hospitality is important. It just wasn't essential. And when our spiritual priorities are wrong, it it changes our view of things and our attitude about things, and we lose joy. And when we lose joy, somebody has to pay the price for that. And so we get on to others. And she's got two people that are in her sight, Jesus and her sister. See, Jesus doesn't say, Martha, Martha, Because he doesn't affirm serving. She wasn't in trouble for serving too much. Serving's a right action. But in the moment, she's doing it with the wrong spirit, right? She could have served and not listened and had the right attitude about it all. But she just has lost all of the perspective about it. And so her life, full of frustration, she lets Jesus know about it. She lets her sister know about it. And then Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But I remind you, I just want to remind you, Martha, one thing is necessary. Your sister sitting at my feet has chosen the good portion. And it's not going to be taken away from her. There's no doubt Jesus would have known what's going on in the kitchen. Do people who are upset always kind of let people know that they're upset about something? With (sighs) Just whatever we do to make sure that people know. So Jesus says to her, Martha, let me tell you something about you right now that you don't see, but let me identify it for you. You think duty to me is a higher priority than delighting in me. And your duty, Martha, should be fueled by your delight in me. And that's where she is. She had a servings ministry, but not a servant's heart. There's nowhere in the story in the text there that Jesus asked for a big meal. Nobody asked for it. And I'll just say this, nothing is to get in the way of this one necessary thing. And when Christ followers choose other things instead of the priority of sitting with Jesus... It will eventually lead to bigger frustrations in our lives. It just will. I've been there. We've all been there. It will happen. It's a life filled with the unnecessary or we will live a life filled with the necessary. Mary knew what she wanted. What did she want? Jesus' words. I want his words. And so when Jesus says, I'm not taking this away from your sister, was he not taken away? The word that Jesus is teaching. I'm not taking away the word from your sister. That's the good part. It's not going to be taken away. She's learned Deuteronomy 8.3, but man does not live by bread alone, but everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, and it will not be taken away from her. As we finish, I want to read something. If you would, just listen to me as I read it. 
I've always been fascinated with Moses and what it was like in those 40 years when they would show up at a place and they'd set up the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and Moses would go into the tent of meeting and God would come down. Can you imagine what that was like? Moses would go into the tent of meeting, God would come down and Exodus 33 tells us that that God would talk to Moses face to face. Can't, can't, I, one day we get to experience that. Moses got to experience it here on this planet in a very, very unique way. And it's interesting what this says, and I want to close with this. So if you would, just listen along. This is Exodus 33, beginning in verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone inside. When Moses entered, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance... All the people would rise up and they would worship each at their tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again to the camp, I want you to hear this. His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man at a young age, would not depart from the tent. You get what happened? Moses would leave and Joshua would would sit down. And he would think about what he just witnessed and what he just heard God say to Moses and Moses say to God. I find it incredibly interesting. We know Moses doesn't get to lead the men. It's the one who lingered in worship, contemplating the words of God who became the leader of this nation and established the promised land. So I ask this question as we close. When is the last time you lingered in God's presence and I lingered in God's presence and we just were captivated that the God of heaven speaks And that we get to know his words and walk in his words. This is how Jesus lived his life. One morning they couldn't find him. Where where is he? It's Mark 135. And when they found him, you know what he was doing? He was on his face praying to his father. So his parameters were, I'm going to devour my father's will. I'm going to seek him My priority is him. Joshua's priority was, I'm going to linger and I'm going to contemplate on what I just heard God say to Moses and Moses talked with God and, and he just would linger and he became this great, great leader and godly man. Is it any wonder that Joshua in that first chapter says, be strong and courageous. He had heard God speak over and over and over again. So he knew that God would deliver them. He would give them the land. God had promised it. That's how Jesus lived. Devouring. Not listening to the voices, but listening to the Father and devouring the Father's will. Let's pray.